Good day, and welcome to the Pandemi Show. Stories of the Pandemi for people living in the Pandemi. No one is alone on the Pandemi Show. Thanks for joining us as we unite humanity through stories of hope, connection, and community in the face of the global pandemi. We are all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Thanks for taking a moment to like, subscribe, and follow the Pandemi Show on social media. Happy Emancipation Day, August 1st, 2022. We're fortunate to have a wonderful guest here today talking with us and helping us celebrate the good in the world, the good in the soil, the good in humanity, while having a really tough conversation about the negatives here in Canadian history around how how different groups have been treated, Black people, Indigenous people, non-white people. Who are you? Hello, hello, Dave. I'm Nicola Jane Thomas. I'm from Grand River Food Forestry. I've also been an unschooler for the last 16 years, a wife and uh, a friend, a community member. Nicola Jane, thanks so much for joining us here today on the Pandemi Show. Stories thanks of the Pandemi for the people of the Pandemi. No one's alone on the Pandemi Show. And I'd just like to take a moment to say that I am recording this podcast on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and Neutral people on the Upper Canada Treaty in Blanford, Blenheim. And I am so excited to be talking to a food forester and you, Nicola Jane, soul to soil. That's right. That's me. I first became aware of your work probably a decade ago or more. I mean, everything's a blur kind of with the pandemic, but you were doing food forest projects in Kitchener, Waterloo, in the Grand River watershed in Southern Ontario. Happy Emancipation Day. And thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Pandemic Show. We've been off for the summer, but we're back to recognize this important new federal holiday in Canada. Yeah, August 1st was um, was um, declared a national holiday last year. So this will actually only be the first year, the first year anniversary, this August 1st of it being recognized in Canada, which is really a shocker. But here we are, 2022, just recognizing it now. I'm going to be going to Owen Sound where they're, they've celebrated emancipation the longest anywhere in Canada. And they're starting the celebration on the 28th, 29th, and the 30th. So I'll be in Owen Sound on the Friday, the Saturday, and the Sunday. And I believe there'll be some things on the Monday as well. And Owen Sound is one of the last destinations on the Freedom Highway. And for people who don't know, emancipation means getting freed from slavery. Sadly, there's slavery in the world today. And historically, in North America, there was slavery. I, I believe it was legalized by the King of France in the 1600s. And it started with people of African descent and indigenous people. Yeah. And we also have to remember that in Canada, we had 200 years of slavery before the freedom fighters. Right. And people forget that for some reason in Canada, it's like it doesn't exist. But two thirds of those were indigenous people and one third were black people. So part of my journey is to discover that those connections, because clearly 
Indigenous and Black people have a history together. And that's not written anywhere. And I'm having trouble even finding those oral histories. And my Indigenous alliances in, in, in Kitchener-Waterloo have also the same questions because we know that that's true. And if we were in captivity together, we, we must have shared a lot. I'm also interested in those stories as well. There's a Japanese history here. There's also a Sikh history. So it's not just, you know, and I'm people will say, you know, we're going to look at Black history during Black History Month. We don't want a month. We live all the year around, you know. And so it's Canadian history that happens to be Black. The part of our Canadian history that is Black. The part of our Canadian history that is Sikh. The part of our Canadian, these are the parts that we don't want to look at, but they exist. And what I've found as I started to do this journey is that it's not just for people of, of diversity or the Black diaspora. It's for everybody who's Canadian. It's our story, you know, and that's what I'm finding. Is that people are so shocked to find out about settlements and, and, and Black history here in Ontario, where a lot of us have lived and grown up most of our lives and have just been discluded from the history we've learned. And we're very fortunate to have you here today to talk with us and to share your story. You are currently on a journey, the Santa Copa 100 Miles of Freedom, and it's a journey of rediscovery. You live in the on the Grand River watershed in Kitchener-Waterloo, and you're traveling around southern Ontario and revisiting the stories of the past, unearthing the history to then share with people like me and people in the community through your 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 web project. I've heard you on 98.5 CKWR. I learned things I did not know. I learned things that were hard to hear. I'm better off because of it, and I thank you for that. Can you just tell people of the pandemic, what was your life like before the pandemic struck and before you started this important project, Sankofa 100 Miles of Freedom? Yeah, life was really busy, like most people. You know, I was going from program to program, um, doing talks all over the country, doing some international talks. It was very, very busy. And just before the pandemic hit, I started to, and it's not that I started to, I actually recognized from the beginning because I was traveling across the country doing talks about food forestry. We do a reconciliation now, land acknowledgement. And what I found was that which is great and which is honorable and we should be doing that. But what I found at a lot of these talks was that it was sort of, it was a kind of lip service because the people who would open the ceremony were indigenous and they would do prayer, but then they were on a minute clock. And if you know anything about indigenous people, that's just not the way it works. Right. And so it was very hard to watch them being timed for their introduction, but then they just disappeared. So it was like after they did the introduction, they had no voice in agriculture and there's no diversity. So of a group of 300 people at a conference, there would be a handful of people of diversity. And even then I was throwing in people that had olive skin and saying, OK, we're going to count you in just so we had, you know, uh, I could count on one hand, you know, the amount of people. And so what I found as well is that with those type of confidence, they're very academic heavy. So what happens is if you're in a program, you can get paid to fly to a place and, and share your research. But then the people that are doing the grassroots on the ground work aren't there because they have no funding to show up. 
So then at these conferences, you'd have all of these statistical information that scholars are doing without the people on the ground giving the information. So I felt, and then the people that are on the ground actually doing the work are out of the story too. They're not in the story. They're not being included because it's all academic heavy. So that was very off-putting for me. Also, I found often, (laughs) and it's sad because it's 2022, you know, I'd be sitting at a table and people would be going around introducing themselves and they get to me and it just fizzle out because I'm black. So I'm underestimated. So I don't have a contribution to the conversation. And only then when they see afterwards that I'm actually one of the people that's presenting, (laughs) then, you know, they get turned around and are looking at me like, oh, maybe we should have included you in that introduction. But I sit there and I don't feel put out because for one, I'm very used to it. And for two, I'm 3,000 strong. My ancestors are in my blood. They're all around me. They're with me. So I can't be moved, <laughs> you know, by small things, petty things like that. And then even as I, we applied for a lot of grants because, you know, art depicts life. And we found a, a lot of refuge during pandemic people found in art, in music. You know, even if you say you don't like art, people generally are listening to music a few times a day. That is art. So I wanted to include some artists and also because of the places that I'm traveling and black artists rarely get grants for anything, book writing, anything like that. And I've spoken to some authors and they've been authors for many years, applying for grants, never received not one grant. When their book, actually, when they self-publish and their book gets some recognition, then they will jump on and say, okay, I'll take this as if they were on in the beginning. So when I applied for grants and I had contacted some local black artists and some across Ontario that I thought would be fantastic, they would have their art on the van and get to show it. I got zero grants. And I really don't, I never was in the lane of grants because I find that you get blocked into the bureaucracy of, and then you're outside of what you're actually doing because you have to fit your, whatever your, your project within and, the grants and doing the grants is a job in itself and like you just said the grants conditions can limit your project or change the scope of your project so absolutely and also with black people there's a thing we call white gaze so that means that as i share the information i have to manage how i say it and how i deliver it so that it's more palatable for my funders so um so what happened was one of them actually responded in saying they can't see the benefit. So I thought, well, that's that's sort of an irony in that it's it's a it's an awareness campaign. <laughs> so and I benefit from white privilege. I am a, a white man and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I know we talked to Janice Jolie earlier in the pandemic show. I believe it was season two our episode Battling White Supremacy in Baden. And she said she she found a lot of comfort and strength in doing her art, not for a white audience, but for her Korean Canadian audience and non-white audiences. And I know when we spoke with Lisa Humber, she was a stage manager from Come From Away. She said that several years ago, her book club started reading women's authors. The following year, it was just all 
BIPOC authors, Black, Indigenous, people of color authors, and getting that other perspective can really help white people. I know it's helped me understand what people are saying of different communities and backgrounds that you that you might not understand initially when you just or feel threatened by initially when they first they first share. When we talked to Staz the Boss from Brooklyn, she mentioned the work of Octavia Butler and and getting to read a prominent science fiction writer like Octavia Butler, a black futurist, really has helped me see the different perspectives of a different community. And I think what I've come to after talking with Murray McLaughlin, I Live on a White Cloud, his song in response to the police murder of George Floyd, is that a lot of us have to listen, look internally and see where some of these insecurities and hate comes from. Think about what we can do to get it out. But also when somebody tells us something that we don't experience, we really need to believe them and to, and to think about that. Murray shared that he was doing a recording session and there was a musician who was always on time, but for some reason this one day they were late. And Murray couldn't, everybody was worried about this man. And he, and when he finally got there, it was, he was late because he was driving while black, D-W-B. White people, we might not experience these things, but we have to listen to the people in our community that do experience these things. There's something to it. We need equality and justice for all as a goal. And I think, sadly, this is going to be intergenerational. I think it's, it's, it's a long journey full of a lot of hard conversations. But when I think of the summary report, Murray Sinclair, Senator Murray Sinclair's summary report for the Truth, Truth and Reconciliation report, we have to find the joy in this process of building a better world based on equity and justice for all and not dwelling in the guilt. There's a lot of feelings around this. So I'm just so grateful, Nicola Jane, for you to be here today to recognize and celebrate Emancipation Day with us to share your Sankofa, 100 Miles of Freedom Tour. And can you just tell us what made you pick that title and and why did you decide to do this? Because you're not only traveling to places, which is a big job and talking to people, but you're documenting it and sharing it. I know you taught me a lot about the Detroit River. You put the Detroit River in a perspective in my mind that it had never been in before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting going to these places and um, walking the walk that, um, you know, uh, my people did so very many years ago, which really wasn't that long ago. You know, we're talking 1820 when they arrived here in the Emancipation Lawn in captivity but escaping at captivity and i think also we use this language like slavery the slave trade it makes it more palatable for people it's genocide it's holocaust you know what i mean um, and we make, matters yes it really matters and we're the people we're always on the bottom no matter which country you go to black people are on the bottom but in in reality i mean even if you go and do geological digs we know that civilization started in Africa. We know that that's where we all came from. So if you're a white supremacist, how much are you hating on yourself? This is what I might teach my children, because when you go back, we were all black. We will likely end up being all black. We need to get it together. Even you see a flag of all the religions of, of the world. There's no African there. We talk about voodoo as if it's something demonic. Meanwhile, other cultures can dress in their regalia and it's not seen as demonic, but for us it is. And how did other religions come if they didn't come from the epicenter of where man was born? 
So this really, really weird mind screw that's happened and we are on the bottom. But if you really look, we're on the top because we built most things, my people, you know, across the globe with this colonial. A lot of culture comes from our people. Music comes from our people. Clothing, language. So we are we on the bottom? No, we're not. We're told we're on the bottom. We're not. We're resilient and we keep rising. We keep rising and we keep rising. And the thing about the George Floyd situation was that that's the one good thing that's come out of cell phones with all the crap that's come out of it is that you can see what we already know now. We've been knowing. Police and so brutalities. what happens with Black Lives Matter is that now everybody else sees what we've always known. And so what happened at that time was people were like, could you come and give us a talk? I'm like, no, we've talked enough. We've marched. We've done silent protests, the violent protests, every kind of way, hundreds of years. We're done talking. Figure it out. Hear what we've said. You know, people would say to me, how can we have diversity in my workplace? We're working on our diverse policy. And I just simply say, okay, how many people of color in your office are making decisions? Have you asked your boss why the top positions are no people of color? Because if you want to make a diversity policy and share with me, don't. You know what I mean? Because if you are not doing it in action by representing so that the voices are heard, the perspectives are are valued, are of worth. It's not enough to say, I'm going to do a policy for your people. No. <laughs> We're, we can manage that ourselves. And anyway, my, my trip came out of pandemic, certainly. I was turned around before because, as I said, you know, we had no voice, we had no representation, but yet we cleared all of the land, like Queensbush here from, you know, London all the way up to Grey Bruce down to Hamilton were black settlements. They exist in silos because if you go to those places, they're, they're known there by some of the people that live there. Across Canada, nobody knows. So it's not for lack of them. And there are cemeteries that are actually listed as abandoned. They're listed as abandoned. Now, that's our history. So even I've seen where, you know, we have the blue sign that's uh, the official sign by the government, you know, with the yellow. I've seen at, at the Freeman site where they've they've colored it out. Now, is that a thing you can name a site historic and then take it away? But for black people, yeah. that's how it can work. Right. So yeah. this trip. So what I wanted to make aware, because I grew up in Oakville, Ontario, I moved here from London, England in 1982. I grew up in, in Oakville, Ontario, heard nothing. I was in agriculture for more than 10 years across the country, never heard a thing about black people and agriculture. And so I felt really angry, very pissed off for a long time. So I moved way out of community for a while because um, I didn't want to share that kind of anger that I had. I'm still somewhat angry. Of course, we black people are angry. You know, we've been trodden on and all the things that happened. But there's a resilience to us that's not told. You know, whenever we hear about captivity, we hear the slave narrative. And so I love Ontario. I could spend the rest of my life discovering it and not discover it all. Every time I'm driving, I turn around a corner and there's another beautiful landscape for me to see. So I mixed that combination of traveling Ontario, which is what I do in the summertime anyway, traveling Canada, and wanted to follow that trail, but not of the, the slave story, 
of the resilience and not necessarily of the men, but of the women, because we always hear the men's stories. And as we know, women hold communities together. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm uh, bringing the awareness to our, the fact that we were here, the fact that uh, Canada has a very deep and rich black history here. There's everyday sheroes. You know, we want to think about sheroes and heroes of are the Martin Luther Kings of the story. Sometimes the, the, the everyday heroes and sheroes are the ones that battle the story every day, that go to work, that dig the ground, that plant the, the food, and we don't want to recognize them. So this tour is about that. So Sankofa is a word that is a, it comes from the Twi language. It's from Africa and from Gaia. It means to go back and fetch the knowledge that was left behind. So if you look up Sankofa, you'll find the Black Diaspora has really reached out and grabbed this word. So because we've forgotten ourselves, that's what colonialism does. And what we we want to say, well, we were also fighting and warring and, and, and holding people captive for since the beginning of time. But the thing that the colonials did that was different was took humanity away from us took our culture, language, everything that we are. The same thing that's done to indigenous people across the globe has been done to black people. I mean, even indigenous people now here, we're talking about the children that have been found. We've been known that. So to say now we just know is not the truth. We've been known. I knew that, you know, how many years ago. So other people knew that. There are more children of indigenous background in care now than there was in the 60s, grab and residential schools put together. So we can come and talk about how awful that was with zero action to how awful it is more today. A lot of people want to pay lip service, you know, have orange t-shirts and do nothing. This we see over and over. My trip is also that part of the motto of Grand River is the value of one and the power of many. You know, the power is with the people always. When I started food forestry, it was because I bought a container of raspberry that cost me almost $8. I have three children to share that organic raspberries with. If you're a gardener, you know, you don't pound grass raspberries. Nobody does because they take over. So it's ridiculous that something that propagates itself that we have to pay so much for. That's how I started doing food forestry because people had access in um, hiking trails and things. As a kid, we used to walk the old railways and pick raspberries and gooseberries and blackberries and all kinds of things on the way. We never took snacks with us, you know. Um, foraged. We foraged. And actually, it wasn't until I started doing Grand River Food Forestry that my sister reminded me that when we were nine, we petitioned council in London, in Islington, to make that place, uh, because we loved it so much, we spent all our summers there, to make it a wild space. It is now the, the longest hiking naturalized trail in Islington. And those people, some of the people that were in the petition when I was nine, which I'm 53 now, are still on that council. When I contacted, they offered for me to come to their next meeting. And I'm like, the commute is a little bit long. So I've been in the game for some time, you know, in terms of um, how important nature is to our human spirit, mostly to children who are our future. Remember, we used to have that tagline, children are our future, and then we said, eh, we don't need it. 
it's so much more true now than it ever was. And if we don't bring children to the soil and we don't remember our past and we don't remember the people that came before, like even for Grand River doing our food forestry, we plant right on the soil, right? If it wasn't for the Susan Coswins and, and her group, you know, 10, 20 years ago, banning pesticides across Ontario, I couldn't do my work. So I have to recognize that because of what the people did for before me, I am able to do what I do. And we do ourselves a disservice when we forget that what came before, because then we tend to repeat. And also we miss the resources of what was gained from what the people did before. And we tend to go, okay, I have this new idea. I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be great. And people are going to accept it without looking back to see what was done and build on that. That's the foundation we build on. We want to just move on and move on. So Sankofa is go back, fetch the knowledge which we already had, bring it to today and use it. And that's what I'm doing with this tour. Fantastic. And what better way to celebrate Emancipation Day, August 1st, 2022, than to be here with Nicola Jane talking about the Sankofa 100 Miles of Freedom. Nicola Jane, I listened to you on CKWR 98.5, Canada's oldest community radio station in Kitchener, and you were talking about the Detroit River. Now, I've been to Windsor, and I like to go to Detroit. There's so many wonderful things happening there. Recently, I heard the river otters are back in the Detroit River, but you said something on the radio that put the Detroit River in a whole new context. Can you just share your observations and what you've learned about the Detroit River and the March for Freedom? Yeah, and I chose Amherstburg, which took me a minute to get my 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 tongue around because it's the most southern tip of Ontario where the freedom fighters would have first landed. And so when I was there, I talked to people about it. And it's interesting because the, the history is is oral often that you don't, when you go to the sites, talking to people, and that's why I'm doing the road trip because people have the information. There's some information at the sites, but the oral history is where the heart stories are. So people were telling me in one of my videos, you'll see that there's a strip where the boats were coming in and out, the long boats, and they're taking salt and metals in and out of the Detroit River. But then um, you can see that there's bits of landmass between the Canadian side and the American side. And that water, even now, they've told me, is so rough because the lakes meet there that people still die in that water. And I'm looking at people skidooing and wondering why they would make such a choice. Because they say that even if you're wearing a life jacket, the water, the toe can pull you under. So I, with that in mind, I'm thinking about the people that are escaping slavery and thinking about the journey, their hundred miles that they would have had to go through bush and, you know, running from dogs and just the worst kind of atrocities that you could think of that would have happened to them if they were caught. But they're, they're, they're it, like the human spirit is amazing that we could do things with such adversity. So they get there to the Detroit River and it's so rough, but they have no choice. It's either they jump in or they go back to captivity. And so you know, on the other side of the river, you can go to the sites, the Black historic sites, and you can read about those that made it. And you can read about 
how they made clay bricks from the Detroit River. And they're still standing today from those bricks. But then those were the few that made it. There were many that didn't make it, just like on the slave ship when we were packed in. Many were tossed to the bottom of the ocean. So we want to remember the the freedom fighters, the ones that made it. But then what about the ones that didn't? What about the ones that made the 100 miles but just didn't make that river trek? And their lineage is done. They weren't able to keep it going. Their people don't even know whether they were eaten by dogs or that that was. I mean, even Harriet Tubman, you know, she was gone so long. By the time she came back, her husband had moved on two years, thought she was dead. She was doing the, the freedom trail to go get her husband. That's how she started it. And then when she got back, she said, okay, maybe creator has a different story from me because clearly it's not my husband. He's moved on. Right. And then she went on to take more and more people. And it was just so moving to stand in the place that she stood to, to be in, in the church where I can't, you know, when you're, you're relieved of something and you exhale, I can't imagine what kind of exhale you would have to, to come to Canada and then find your way to that church and, and then know that you're, you're no longer going to have to chase dogs. You're no longer going to be lynched. You're no longer. And one of the women I spoke to, she had said to me, and she was in Chatham, 79 year old woman there. She said, isn't it funny how our settlements are always close to watersheds or railways. Yeah, because even in 2022, we better be ready to run. We never know when we got to run. We've never had that settled place. And it's unfortunate that some people would think they can't understand that. But even today, the amount that there's that same level of cruelty in the world today, if you look at how children and, and people are treated trying to cross the border into the southern United States, children being taken away from their families. It's disgusting that that same level of cruelty exists today, has existed and has existed historically. And I'm glad we're talking about it so we can reimagine a different future and we can celebrate these freedom fighters that made the trek and escaped slavery, survived the harshness of nature to make it to Canada and make it to Owen Sound and some of the other places where they could find jobs and start over. The ancestors of these people are still out here in Southern Ontario or maybe around the world, but I'm glad that you're helping tell this story to people like me and people around the world, because if we understand history, hopefully we won't repeat it. Yeah. And the the other thing is, is that, you know, in reconciliation, we can't have blame, shame, and guilt. This is not a blame, shame, and guilt story. If we stay with that, we can't move forward. This is reconciliation. And I believe in people. And whenever there's natural disaster, government doesn't run in. It, 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 we, it's the people on the ground that save each other. And I believe in those stories. I believe that there were baskets of food that were carried together. You know, I don't buy the story that all people wanted to do these kinds of atrocities. I mean, I can't hold that. You know, so yeah, it's to find the, those great stories of the women. And funny enough, I'm finding great stories of men, which is interesting because when we talk about equality and how, you know, what needs to happen is that women need to have more equality. To be honest with you, I think men need a hug. I think that the issue is, is that men don't have men's circles. Men don't have support systems. Men don't have places to cry. Men don't have places where they can be vulnerable 
be nurturing. And so this is the state of our world right now is that I think that if men had more circles where they could share and not have to hold and be, you think back to when men were hunters, they went into the forest together. Suddenly they had youth with them and they were saying, I'm really scared. So then the elders would say, you know what, when I came to, I was also very scared. And they would share their stories and they would support each other. We're not seeing that. And I think that that's where we've gotten lost. It's not necessarily women to jump up and be men in the story. No, you know, we do our own selves very well, but there seems to be no place for men in that. And so what I've actually found on the trip is men supporting men, which has been a really beautiful surprise to me to see men sharing food taking care of one another, bringing things to each other. So that's been a one. And that's why I'm going on the journey. And, and people will say, well, where are you going next? Part of the journey is that whenever we go on road trips, it's the parts that we didn't plan that usually are the best. So the whole trip is not really planned. It's loosely planned so that I can meet with people and have that kind of serendipitous magic that we know exists. Can you tell us, what was the Mecca Museum in Chatham like? It was full of information. They had so much data there. It was crazy to think that we're out here sifting through to find, and they have so much there. The issue is, is that it's funded by government. So they either get, and that's not just Black history. It's, it's any kind of museum. They have a hard time getting grants. Worse for Black diaspora. There is a rich oral history because um, the people are ancestors often of these sites. So they can go back to the 1820s in their own lineage, which is very difficult for most people in Black Diaspora to do. That's a wonderful... I'm going back there. I, You know, I'm going back to some of the places because it's summertime. And so a lot of people were missing at the time. And then I found as well that we need to spend more time at least two or three days in each site. And because trying to upload the information, find internet and all of those things has proven very, very difficult. And also because I'm not tech curious. So I don't have <laughs> that gene, right? To like really be. So it's been, I knew it was going to be a challenge, but at the same time, I felt like it was a challenge that was very necessary. The ancestors have been bubbling up inside of me and I felt like it was but I had to wait until I could share where it was palatable, that it wasn't a guilt, blame and shame. So I actually throughout the pandemic, I've done I write a lot. So I've done a lot of writing. So in the fall, I'm coming out with a, a book. It's called uh, Soul to Soil, because the thing about us as human beings is that we're all soil in the end, you know, when, and all of our stories no matter which shade or background, are in the soil. The blood, the sweat, the stories are in the soil. So I think soil is a great place to start for reconciliation because it's the one place that we can all agree on. Food is passive. We all know we need to eat. So that's why I started with, it was activism from the beginning, but I didn't have to use that language because food is passive. So I was able to get people together to do things in action for activism for the planet without saying that because at the time people get really bent out of shape when you 
start to say, oh, well, what can you do? Because I think people want to do, they're just stuck in knowing what to do. And we're limited with leaders. I think the programming that we have with internet and stimuli is so deep that we don't have much free thinkers. And, and so it's difficult to move into a different way of being without leaders to show us that way. It seems like the algorithm on social media is to dumb us down rather than to connect us with the bright minds in our myths. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're so, I mean, even with the boob tube with television, you know, even when you watch the news, you know, there's a good story. They'd start with the tagline of, oh, the dog got rescued. That's like, you have to wait an entire hour to hear that one minute story. Why don't we lead with the good stories? We never hear them. And we, we're full of them. We're just, it's fear-based society that we're in. And there are many great stories of many people doing wonderful things. We just have to start to highlight them more, you know? I think the pandemic too, a lot of the early pandemic was neighbors helping neighbors. Some of the good things that came about the pandemic is that people on their street know each other more now than they did beforehand. So hopefully there'll be maybe some more community mobilization. Absolutely. Yeah. And and when we get the dialogue is the best, right? Like we have uncomfortable dialogue, but as long as we stay in the dialogue, the other thing that's happened with pandemic as well is it's given people license to, to basically like to dart and throw their opinions at others. So that's been very difficult. And I think people hide behind the Facebooks of the story instead of coming out with that language face to face. So that's been a difficult thing, but it has also, you know, the cream rises to the top. It filters out a lot of the noise that we were paying attention to and putting our energies to. I think that that's what pandemic has really done as well for some of us is it's, like I said, I was very busy before the pandemic. Not that I'm not busy now, but I am more discriminating as to where I'm putting my energy and the level of capacity by which I have to give and where and when I do that. If there's no push and pull, then that's a waste of capacity for me. I moved out of community for two years. I was very integrated and and involved in community, but I felt I had to really step back and not no longer use the white gaze with my voice, but come with my authentic voice. Hard as the language is to hear for people, it must be heard, you know, and I'm not now coming in in an apologetic way. I'm not out here to make enemies, but I'm out here to share the truth. And I think we're ready. And I think most people have broad enough shoulders and it's hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to share. So yes, it's going to be hard to hear. I hope that people continue to share. And there's an embracing of the tough, you know, like how do we get to the good if we don't embrace the tough parts? That's what we've did with Canadian history. We pretend it didn't exist. And so what does that do for my worth and my value if what my people did doesn't count? Of course it counts. And I think now we're in season three of the pandemic. We're in the middle of the pandemic. Here in Ontario, things are opening up. But those first two seasons of the pandemic, when we really were isolated and locked down, the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, the focus on truth and reconciliation and ending the secrecy around residential schools. seems like there is a collective awareness of these things that hasn't been before in my lifetime. 
I know yes. I remember Oka as a as a twelve year old. That I think that anniversary just passed a month ago or so, and I couldn't understand as a young person why adults were fighting like this. I could understand why people would feel like they needed to defend themselves. I couldn't understand why the government was doing what they were doing, and now all these years later, and then and then the pandemic too has been quite divisive. I think social media and people with money and influence have seen this as an opportunity to divide and conquer, and disagreement and chaos really benefits some but now we're in the season three it's it's the great reopening how are you celebrating emancipation day 2022 i know before we started talking you said you had some plans yes i do i'm gonna be going to the emancipation celebration at owen sound and i have a few a couple of things up my sleeve that haven't really come together yet so I'm not going to share that right now. Hopefully I'll be able to share at the time. I'm just really looking forward for one to be surrounded by black people, which is not something that you get to experience very often in Ontario. And it's a wonderful experience to see people of all different shades of myself with all different hair types as myself, because generally my hair is seen as very aggressive, you know, in the workplace although other people rever it and I have to stop them from putting their hands in my hair. I'm looking forward to that people understand better the plight of of diaspora, of BIPOC, which is a term that I absolutely hate. It sounds like a virus, (laughs) right? BIPOC. I don't have one, but I don't like that one much. But you know, it is what it is. And it describes what's what, what's going on. I'm excited because, you know, I'm an example of resilience, if not my life on its own. My my tour is also a tribute to my parents who met at a time when black people and white people should not be together. It's still very segregated. Um, at that time, my mother took a chaperone to go on the first date with my father. Their story is of love. There was no color lines, although people would ask me, who do I like better? I like the love. (laughs) I like having two parents who love me just like everybody else. They were activists by proxy of their love. They weren't intentionally being renegades. They just were in love, you know, and we can come back to that simplicity of humankind that we all need love and we all need to be we need to, to have value for our experiences. That's the human condition. As long as our experiences can be validated, that they can be made aware that, that our plights aren't for nothing. You know, that the children, it's tough. I am just so thankful, Nicola Jane, for you sharing, uh, for doing this project, the Sankofa 100 Miles to Freedom Tour, and for sharing it. So someone like me who wants to become more informed and, and learn about the history in my region can do so. And I'm so excited for you going up to Owen Sound. I've been to the park where the where that very unassuming, powerful monument is. And I'm just so excited to be celebrating Emancipation Day a little bit early here with you today on the pandemic. Stories of the pandemic for the people of the pandemic. No one's alone on the pandemic show. Nicola Jane, I think we would both agree structural racism, income inequality, environmental degradation, how we treat our seniors, how we're divided by age groups and different backgrounds. There were so many different pandemics happening before the COVID-19 pandemic. When 
or if we're looking at the COVID-19 pandemic in the rear view, what do you hope the world's like in the future? Well, boy, that's a big question. I tell you what, though, you remember when everything shut down, locked down in the first couple of months and yep. the Himalayas were visible and dolphins were in uh, the Venice Canal. I don't know if you've ever been and seen that canal. It's disgusting normally. And in two months for the Earth Mother to readjust herself, I think I'd love to see a global lockdown on purpose for every year. Who doesn't want two months off? Who couldn't use the rest? I think it's shown us that we're moving and running about like for no reason often. If we had a lockdown where we know, okay, we're going to ride our bikes. We're going to hang out with family. We're not going to do the things that pollute. We're going to give the earth a chance that gives us a chance. What would that be like, Dave? I am so excited, Nicola Jane, by your amazing idea of having a pollution lockdown or moratorium and slowing down our pace of life and connecting and spending more time in the natural world around us. That would, I think, address so many of our problems. And, and that's interesting you say that. Like It reminds me of Ned McAllister, a, an amphibian lover. And he commented on how with the lockdowns, there's so many few fewer cars on the road, more frogs and amphibians and reptiles made it across the road after they hatched. Uh, so there were so many natural benefits yes. to the earth that we as humans necessarily benefit from as being interconnected with all of this beauty. I noticed that during the lockdowns, that slower pace of life, I was seeing the things, the other species in my life a little bit clearer. There was one day I noticed there was a little bee stuck upside down on a water droplet on my car. And just small, small things like that, like how the clouds look, the rays of light coming through the trees, the, yeah. the hummingbirds fighting to protect the bird feeder, all of those types of things. So, wow. We're always talking about what can we do for pollution? What can we? Well, it turns out we do nothing. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> how about that? You know, we could do nothing. And it's not just, it's ecological. When I think about ecological wellness, that includes us as a human being. That includes our our mentality like how many people had a moment to like so many people had their kids home they weren't used to it i mean we've homeschooled for years so we're used to that reconnecting with your children you know nine to five who made up that number your kids have to be in care before and after school why can't you drive them why not make the the, the when you work is in, in after you drop your kid then you have half an hour to get to work then you half an hour leave so you can get to your kid and nobody else has to raise your kid. How about that? You know, how about you get home at a decent time where you can relax and you're not rushing around? How about we take a break from all the doing, 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 you know, I think we get lost in what do we do? What do we do? Nothing sometimes, you know, take a breath, sit still. How many people can sit still without thinking or doing in a room? That's hard. I've been practicing that skill. I In my work, I, I encourage people to build a pond because it gives you the watching fish gives you the same feeling as watching the sky, watching the ocean or watching fire. It's like a you can take a pilgrimage to your backyard at the end of the day and just sit. I have a friend who's very, 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 very busy. She built a pond and she said, oh, my gosh, it's the first time that I've sat without thought just looking at the fish. We need to have more of those moments to get back inside 
ourselves. And only then can we remember to connect with each other and the soil. Nicola Jane Thomas, thank you so much for joining us here today as we recognize and celebrate Emancipation Day. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's been a pleasure and it's always great to chat with you. Thanks for listening to The Pandemic Show. We're all in this together and we're glad you're here together with us. Physically distance with us at pandemishow.com. Be a part of our community by subscribing to and sharing The Pandemic Show. Thanks for taking a minute to email an episode, share a link, or promote us on social media. Pandemic Show is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. Stories from the pandemic for the people of the pandemic. Do you have an interesting pandemic story and want to share? Email us at pandemishow at gmail.com. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Giant Value for singing us in and letting us know everything is going to be all right. No one is alone at the pandemic show.